This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. That's G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, June 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, soaring gas prices are not tanking demand for new cars. CarMax sees its sales fall, but not its per-vehicle profits. And Swedish battery company Northvolt moves forward with a $12 billion IPO plan. Plus, we hear from trade policy expert Kelly Maiman-Hawk about the impact of the USMCA trade deal on the auto industry. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Prices at the pump have topped more than $5 a gallon here in the U.S. this year, but that hasn't dampened demand for new vehicles. Experts say that's at least in part due to significant improvements in fuel economy for most internal combustion vehicles. That includes large pickups and SUVs. The situation is very different than in 2008 when large vehicles were less efficient and the economy was in worse shape. The global semiconductor shortage is also keeping inventories low. As we mentioned last week on the podcast, consulting firm Alex Partners expects those supply chain issues to continue suppressing inventories through 2024. CarMax has seen its sales fall 11% year over year in the first quarter. Company executives attribute the slump to inflated vehicle prices. They also point to last year's $1,400 stimulus checks that helped boost sales. Despite the setbacks, CarMax has kept a handle on per-vehicle profits. It reported making over $2,000 on each vehicle sold. That's more than $130 more than it did during the same time last year. Retail prices rose about $6,300, which allowed the company to pull in about 14% more revenue from its used car sales in the first quarter. Infinity is preparing a dramatic brand makeover. The struggling Japanese premium player is hoping for a jumpstart for a new era of growth and a belated leap into the battery electric race. The plans include a new look for Infinity dealerships, a new design language for its vehicles, and a flurry of accents to impress customers. Those include a unique Infinity scent and signature sound. Infinity chairman Payman Cargar outlined the plan publicly for the first time in a conversation with Automotive News. He says the campaign will kick off this fiscal year and develop a more consistent and sophisticated brand image. And Sweden's Northvolt plans to go public within the next two years as battery demand booms for electric vehicles. The battery company's customers include BMW and Volkswagen. The venture is valued around $12 billion, that's with a B, after raising about $6.5 billion through debt and equity. It's part of a trio of green technology startups spearheaded by the company's founder and chairman, Carl Eric Lagerkrantz, and private equity veteran Harold Mix. Lagerkrantz said in an interview that Northvolt is well-positioned for an initial public offering. He says a listing during the next two years is a reasonable expectation. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, we talked at the top of the show today about the record high gas prices and how they don't seem to be dampening demand for big new vehicles. You covered the industry back in 2008 when gas prices were through the roof, and that really caused huge disruptions. Why do you think it's different now? So back in 2008, it was the Great Recession. It was really hard to get vehicles financed. But the the main thing is, after bailing out the auto industry, 
President Obama really set aggressive fuel economy standards uh, for vehicles of all sizes. And so what we've seen in the meantime is the steady improvement in the fuel efficiency of big trucks and big SUVs. Now they get 50% better fuel economy than they did a decade and a half ago. And it's just made it so high fuel prices, high gasoline prices just don't take the same bite out of consumers' wallets as they used to. Coming up, President Trump did not push for better fuel economy standards. What he did push for was a new trade deal. USMCA has had significant impacts on the auto industry in North America. Jamie recently spoke with trade expert Kelly Myman-Hawk of McLarty Associates about those impacts. We'll hear part of that conversation next on Daily Drive. Listen to Fred Hayes, service manager at Temecula Valley Buick GMC, and Philip Candido, fixed operations director, talk about their experience with GoMoto in their service drive. Before GoMoto, the backups in the service lane were due to not being able to get to the customer in a, in a timely manner. There's times where menus are passed over where the advisor forgets to tell them, hey, it needs its major service. And now with the GoMoto, customers are presented with a maintenance package every time. The time freed up from not having the customer sitting in front of them every single time they come in, it helps them be more efficient. It helps them focus more on the customer's concern and the, the maintenance and service of the vehicle. Before GoMoto, we would average approximately 130000 in service gross. The kiosk in the service drive doubled the gross profit in the dealership. It's amazing, 100%. Using the GoMoto kiosk makes the dealership more profitable. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency just like Temecula Valley? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. That's G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. It's hard to measure all of the economic effects of the USMCA trade deal that went into effect in 2020. Think about all of the economic disruptions that have happened in the meantime. We've had a global pandemic, supply chain disruptions, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But at least one trade policy expert says we do know that the deal has been a vital enforcement tool for the auto industry. Kelly Myman-Hawk is managing partner at McLarty Associates. I recently caught up with her at the Automotive News Congress in Washington, D.C. Here's part of that conversation. We don't seem to have any big trade deals to talk about. But we have had some in the past. Uh, USMCA, of course, has been in place for a little while. How do you see the implementation playing out so far? It's almost hard to tell because it came into effect in July 2020. <laughs> so, you know, is it the chip shortage? Now, is it, you know, the war? So there's a lot at play there, you know, but I think that there, you know, are some interim assessments that we can make. First and foremost, I think it's important to remember that a lot of USMCA is actually uh, very similar to NAFTA. A lot of USMCA, you know, and, and people would say, you know, during I participated in many of the rounds, as you know, Jamie, in, in the, the renegotiation of NAFTA, and folks would say, well, this agreement, you know, it's over 25 years old and we need to update it. And I'd say, we did. It's called TPP. <laughs> that was the whole idea when we negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership was to be able to modernize the agreement without having to reopen the agreement. Reopening agreements is always tough. 
But, you know, we, we gained, you know, some, if you look at, you know, there's really good regulatory provisions, there's really good digital provisions that we didn't have in NAFTA. The one area that really changed is yours. It's autos. You had much more stringent rules of origin requirements under USMCA. You have, for the first time in any trade agreement, wages as a component of rules of origin, which was unprecedented. You have a rapid response mechanism, which we can talk about a bit later if you'd like, for alleged labor violations. And so there is a lot that's new. And transitioning to that what's new in your sector upon the backdrop of supply chain challenges and upon the backdrop of a global pandemic has been incredibly challenging. And if you look at the tariff environment in the United States for autos, 2.5%. For trucks, it's higher, 25 but it does where there are challenges, at least for cars, there's a temptation of, do I really want to jump through all these hoops for, <laughs> to meet these rules of origin? Or should I just pay the 2.5%? So, you know, there is a little bit of that going on as well. The rules of origin is interesting. We talked uh, earlier in the day about sort of the philosophical benefits of importing of trade for lowering cost versus the security of producing domestically, as of course, as well as the creating local jobs. Is that really, even uh, without knowing the <laughs> Ukraine or the chip crisis, happens, is that kind of what right. the rules of origin were supposed to address? Yeah, I mean, I always wish that we, rather than calling NAFTA NAFTA, we should have called it the North America Competitiveness Zone. And it, because really what it did, it allowed Canada and the United States to access lower cost labor in Mexico and to create a fully integrated North American product and compete globally. That's what it did. And there is no sector where you can prove that point more than automobiles. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting. I've worked on trade policy my entire career. And you always want to make, or at least I've always wanted to make, the consumer benefits of trade argument, right? Mm -hmm. Prices will be lower and everyone will be able to access more goods. That makes us all better off. And it never really works. I mean, people would kind of shrug and they'd say, <laughs> yeah, but. You'd always get the yeah, but. And it's going to be very interesting. It's been a while, right, since we've been in a high inflation environment. Uh, we all remember, or at least those of us are old enough remember the 70s. And, um, you know, and it'll be interesting to see if we can use this moment, this inflationary moment, as an inflection point to start to argue more effectively for what it is that trade agreements like USMCA and others that lower tariffs provide for all of us, including consumers. Let's talk about the rapid response mechanism. The Trump and Biden administrations both highlighted the labor components of USMCA. What is your assessment of the implementation? When the rapid response mechanism first was tacked on, because it's important to remember, it didn't come from the, the actual negotiation. This is a mechanism that is unprecedented that was added by the US Congress to get broader support, democratic support for the agreement. And so it basically allows, you know, immediate, almost snap inspections, investigations of alleged labor practices in Mexican plants. I was worried, particularly because there is, uh, and we've seen this, there have been four rapid response mechanisms, cases filed thus far, every single one in the auto sector. There are other sectors that could be touched. I, I'm hearing just, you know, gossip that the food industry, uh, processed food, might come next. So you guys might dodge a bullet on the next rapid response case, we'll see. But what you can do is you can immediately suspend clearance of goods from that factory. So the first, where did my brain go? My brain went, oh, what, what are we gonna do with supply chain insecurity? And we're already facing the pandemic. If you, know, you are counting on getting that widget from a certain plant and then overnight, not overnight, but pretty darn fast, 
you can lose access to it. I think what we've seen thus far, and I'm going to knock on wood, is you know there have been some disruptions in that regard, of course. But we've seen a fairly judicious approach towards the Mexicans. I was also worried it might be implemented in, in a way that would be offensive uh, to the Mexicans, a heavy-handed way, you know, the gringos coming in to inspect a factory type of thing. And it's actually been done in a fairly collaborative way. Obviously, AMLO, the president there, is a pro-labor guy. And so, you know, that probably helps. And I would say that in at least the three cases, one was just filed, the most recent one, just on June 6th. But in the cases that have, you know, are, that are further down the path, they've all led to resolution. I mean, there isn't one that hasn't been resolved. And I think what that shows from my perspective is multinational companies, uh, certainly multinational auto companies, nobody wants to be on the front page of the New York Times because there was some labor dispute or some labor issue, right? Folks are, in my experience, for the most part, trying to do the right thing. And so I've been actually reassured that the way that this mechanism has been implemented overall has been responsible and led to good results. That is just early days with two fairly uh, pro-labor presidents in the U.S. and, and Mexico. Correct. Are you concerned that that could change under new administrations in either country? I think the tone of implementation certainly could change. I mean, if you had a president that was more aggressive and less concerned about doing this in a face-saving way, certainly. And we'll, we'll see how that goes forward. But so far, so good. So you mentioned the um, trying to make the consumer benefits argument, and it's just hard for people to see that or to appreciate a 2%, a lack of inflation in a product. <laughs> right. And I think similarly, right, another argument has been to create good jobs in other countries so people don't have to all come here to have good jobs. Especially in and, the Americas. Folks can walk here. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a hard one for people to wrap their heads around too. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be. But I think, you know, I, I think that what we've seen, you know, with NAFTA and now with USMCA, it, you know, it's really proven the case that when we make a bet and we do decide to integrate our supply chains and do it in a collaborative way, it can lead to extremely good results. There, you know, there have been some hiccups. I should probably mention, Jamie, the rules of origin dispute that's going on right now, which I'm sure many in the room are familiar with, where Canada and, uh, excuse me, Mexico did it first, Mexico and Canada, I should say, have requested an, a dispute settlement panel. It's basically where you go to adjudicate these cases under USMCA in order to dispute the United States interpretation. Under the rules of origin, there's certain components of the car that are called core. And so there's a dispute over how you determine whether or not those core goods, can you roll them up and look, them at, uh, look at them in the aggregate? Or do you have to look at every individual core part? The United States says every individual core part. Everybody else says, no, that's not what we talked about. <laughs> so that also has led to some uncertainty, which is unfortunate. And we're expecting a panel uh, determination to come out uh, initially in September and then made public in October. You might notice that all of that happens right before November, where <laughs> some things happen here in the United States from a midterm perspective. You know, autos as a sector and trade is a topic that are always highly politicized. So we will see what the panelists come up with and how that is received. Kelly Maiman-Hawk is managing partner at McClarty Associates. We spoke at the Automotive News Congress in Washington, D.C. You can hear the rest of that conversation and all of the discussions we had on stage at the event by going to our website. That's at autonews.com slash wash D.C. Congress. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. 
Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on global trade policies, retail, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.